Hello and welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Sunderland. This is a spot where nurses share their stories and their experiences to provide mentorship as well as help nurses and soon-to-be nurses just like yourself along the way. I hope you enjoy these episodes. Welcome to episode six of season two of the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I am joined with my friend and colleague, Amanda Redinger. Amanda is a travel nurse right now. Uh, she graduated from Wilkes University in 2013 with a bachelor's in psychology. After working a couple of years as a mental health technician, which is pretty fascinating and something I would never want to do, she realized she had an interest in nursing. She attended DeSales University Accelerated BSN program. Shout out to them. I have a friend that has also attended that program and graduated in 2017. She went directly into ICU nursing and worked as a staff nurse for two years before going into travel nursing. She has been in Pennsylvania, California, and Connecticut while attending Walden University for her master's to be a psychiatric nurse practitioner. Also gross, I'm speaking from my own personal things, but I think it's wonderful that you wanna be a psychiatric nurse practitioner. When she isn't proning patients, sorry, this part, (laughs) I could just, in solidarity, laugh at this. It's the perfect line in, in anyone's bio that they've ever written for me. <laughs> when she isn't proning patients and there isn't a pandemic surrounding us, she enjoys Broadway shows, concerts, playing with her puppy, and putting together Lego sets with her fiance, Stuart. The part that I laugh about is proning patients. <laughs> when I'm not busy proning patients. <laughs> well, that's all I do now. <laughs> all, that's all it is, right? It's like, oh, welcome to 12 hours. Let's start proning people. Yep. <laughs> Well, welcome to the podcast. I'm so thankful that you decided to share some stories with me today. Of course. And everyone else. <laughs> I'm really excited to help students learn all about travel nursing. I I don't remember if I've had a travel nurse on the podcast yet. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least I've had one, but not in the not in the way that people have gone out and just have taken care of COVID as a travel nurse. So I've had travel nurse, a travel nurse on it who's on this um coming episode, uh, excuse me, season who is now a MP at a minute clinic who did travel nursing for, I think like five years, mm-hmm. but never during a pandemic. And, you know, never was like, I'm going to be an ICU nurse for two years. And then I'm going to go do travel nursing. Like yeah. one of those things. I had similar ideas when I graduated with my BSN, I was like, I'm going to do a travel nurse. And I think I surprised everybody by just staying at my job for the last 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, no one really understands what, how I could just exist in one place for 10 years, but here we are. So you started out as a mental health technician. What does that mean? So basically I was like a nurse's aide on a psych unit. Um, so I did vitals. I did what we would call like uh, therapy work with the kid with, cause I worked with adolescents typically um, with the kids. So we worked with what are your cognitive distortions for the day and how do we work through that? And what are some healthy coping skills? So I would work with the kids doing that kind of work um, and then just kind of helping monitor them, make sure that they were acting appropriately in the rec room and going to bed on time and things like that. Was this a long-term care facility like, or was it an inpatient? It was inpatient. inpatient, inpatient facility. And were they there for like the routine 30 to 90 days? Were they there for a while? Some 
were just in for like a couple days, like just need like a quick med check. And unfortunately, like with our system, the way it is, uh, quickest way is to get into the ER, get into an acute care facility and get it fixed. Um, some, so like some were there for three days, seven days was usually about the average, at least for the kids. And then you'd have some that were the long-termers that were there for two to three months because uh, they just couldn't get themselves on track. Wow. It's sad that they have to go through the ED. You're so right. Because whenever I see an ED dashboard anywhere, it's always like people are there for 200 hours on a psych emergency crisis and they're just waiting for a bed. Right. And at some points I'm kind of like, well, we should open up more psychiatric hospitals. And then the other end of it, there was this whole aspect of we should close all the psychiatric hospitals and not do them anymore. And I forget, there was a study that I, that I just saw that basically said we should have never closed down these hospitals. Right. By doing so really didn't help the psychiatric community. It actually kind of just displaced people worse. Right. Because now they have nowhere to go when they do have issues or you have the people that have been such long term that now they don't have a home basically because they can't function in society with like having a job and things like that. They need that like group home like facility almost. Yeah. And that's pretty detrimental because so I worked in traumatic brain injury rehab for five years during the time that I went to nursing school and then a, and then a, a short period of time after I got my first job in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was quite eye-opening how families just did not stick around yeah. for those that have disabilities that last longer than a quote unquote short period of time. Right. And that was disheartening to me because then they become residents of this place, which is not the worst thing because that's what they're there for. But we have no real... Uh, way of getting them back home Mm -hmm. and you know I kind of like paralleled this to an inpatient hospital whereas we should not keep people there forever right right but in the same respects it could be different it could be something like I'm helping somebody get back to where they need to be and we have these this many days to do it and we understand they shouldn't be institutionalized for a long period of time Mm -hmm. but they have nowhere else to go right and it's this huge conundrum I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to uh Put, the, put that link to, to the article in the notes once once we're done. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think people should should definitely read that, especially students that want to go into psych nursing. I have never wanted to go into psych nursing. I think because for me, and you can, you can certainly talk about this as well, because I do want to hear your take. For me, psych nursing mm-hmm. isn't a exciting endeavor in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I mean, exciting by like, I need adrenaline. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) And I know that about myself. And sometimes Mm -hmm. the adrenaline can be a psych breakthrough or some patient that needs crisis help, but it's just not, it's just, it's just some, somehow like I don't get excited about group classes, therapy work, things like that. I, so I was, thinking about psych nursing originally, but then I was like, there's all these skills I learned in school that I won't get to use. So like, I will probably rarely ever put an IV in a psych patient. And like, even like the basic stuff of like catheters, hanging IVs, like that kind of stuff is completely foreign to psych nurses. So when I graduated from nursing school, I was like, I want to work where I could apply what I learned, Mm -hmm. which I mean, neuro ICU was perfect. Yeah, it was a nice blend um, of crazy meets exciting. 
I guess. <laughs> right. So, but I mean, I still had a PRN job at the psych hospital doing um, ECT recovery. Oh yeah. I remember this. Yeah. I do remember so you having that. I time. still worked in psych in some capacity. I'll probably look more into doing it more full term once I, my goals are accomplished with my travel nursing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree. I, I mean, for, I guess, for, you know, when I went into being, being a neuroscience nurse, I didn't really think of it as psychiatric. It is very much psychiatric. You don't ever leave psych for the, for the student nurse listening. <laughs> Once you learn about psych in, in the, in, you know, you know, your nursing program, it doesn't ever really leave you because everybody's crazy in, in their own way. And it's not just book stuff that you have to deal with. It's dynamics of families. It's dynamics of how to talk to somebody and how to calm them down when they have a crisis breakthrough and they want to harm somebody mm -hmm. on your unit because you you do see the sickest of the sick in the hospitals, especially if you're gonna work for a large academic medical center, you are seeing the sickest of the sick. Um, and then also you might be in an organization as a nurse that perhaps does not have as much um, resources to help you as a nurse to handle these things. So you have to learn these skills. So I think those skills are still warranted, but you're right. I mean, when I graduated school, I was like, I need to just do trauma. I need to see <laughs> exciting things in life. And then I ended up in neurotrauma as an IMC nurse, like kind of that level and then yeah. went on from there. But um, but it's just funny that like how I thought about mental health back in the day, which is not as exciting as I thought it was gonna be. Mm -hmm. you know? Did you say something? I'm so sorry. Sorry, no, it's okay. Yeah, it just froze a little bit. No, I didn't. <laughs> You're <Okay>. good. <laughs> <laughs> so then you joined a, um, excuse me, an ICU. We're yep. an ICU nurse for two years. A charge nurse as well, right? Yeah. Which was nuts. Charge nursing is crazy. That's a whole other. That's a whole other <laughs> podcast topic that I think I'm going to bring a bunch of people on to talk about charge nursing. But, um, and then decided to go into travel nursing. Why did you choose? Like, what was it for you that? like I really want to do this for a couple years so the main one started to be we didn't have a lot of experience on our unit at one point so I was charge nurse frequently um and no one else could do it because we had such little experience on our unit which it ebbs and flows like every other unit and I was missing bedside. I missed just being able to take care of patients. And I was tossing around the idea of going for my master's. And I think I speak to a lot of students when I had a lot of student loan debt. Mm -hmm. I mean, my nursing degree was my second, de my second degree. So I had a good chunk of student loan debt. I wanted my master's. I didn't want to go into more debt to get my master's. So I started looking at travel nursing options and I was like, this could really be it. I could go back to working strictly just bedside. Don't have to worry about like management and other things that come along with being a staff nurse, as well as make more money so that I can pay for school and not have to take out any more loans. Mm. So I really tossed around the idea. Um, my fiance and I like broke down the finances and eventually kind of just like took the jump and took a contract in Pennsylvania, still sticking with my PRN position so that I had a safety net in case I hated it. But I ended up really liking it. So then I left my PRN position and went into travel nursing full time. 
That's awesome. And it's very smart of you to still have some sort of, you know, foot in the door of somewhere else in case that travel nursing is really not for you. I've met some people that have loved travel nursing, love, love being a quote unquote vagabond, as you will, in, in, in that realm. Yeah. I've met people that have, that have lived in um, RVs and have just traveled around the country doing travel nursing. Mm-hmm. That, was a very, that was a very long time ago that I met them. Um, and people that just kind of want to do it for a little period of time and then go back to wherever they worked or just go back to a home life or something else. Um, my cousin personally is doing travel PT right now as well as my boyfriend. I don't know that they have a job lined up because of COVID, but they are just kind of loving just traveling all around and making that, that extra amount of money um, Mm -hmm. that they can. Is it different when you're a travel nurse in terms of health insurance and benefits? So you'll get them through your travel company. Okay. So you don't have to like, so as long as you keep taking contracts with your travel company, you will continue to have health insurance and benefits and such. Okay. And is there something that your company would protect you in case there is no job in, in the moment? I mean, I know there's tons right now, right? But if there right. happens to be- I mean, There's never, I've never had the issue of there not being a job. Okay. <laughs> so I don't, I believe the insurance would cover for like 30 days up until like your the end of one contract into another, if okay. there were a gap. Um, so you would have some insurance. So you'd still have like a chunk of time to find a job if you would need it. But there's, there's never not, a, there's never enough nurses. So there's always. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, I, I want to ask that because I know my students will have that question because they are so new to experiences that they're kind of like, well, I kind of want to travel nurse, but I don't know much about it. And, you know, in their heads, they're kind of like, well, if I don't find something right away, do I have enough time to figure out what I want to do next? And that's a pretty good question for them to ask. So it's nice to know that at least your benefits are protected for at least 30 days. I'm assuming with the right company um, that you sign on with and can carry Mm -hmm. over. Um, Yes. So the other question that I know my students will have, because a lot of times, you know, they, they want X amount of years experience and then go to travel nursing. Do you think that two years was enough? I think two years was enough with the experience that I got. I had amazing preceptors and I was able to really build a strong foundation working where we worked. Um, I saw a lot of cases and even my first contract was neuro ICU. Cause I was like, I'm going to stick with what I know. Yeah. Um, and I think that was certainly helpful. Now, unfortunately you can get a job with little to no experience being a travel nurse. And I don't feel that is acceptable. I I've heard stories now of these nurses who are lying about their experience they're not ICU nurses. They're taking ICU positions because ICU does pay more as a travel nurse. And therefore you're putting patients at risk now because no one's really following up on that, unfortunately. Yeah, Yeah. that is, that is a huge statement um, that I have seen as well is that people will say they have X amount of experience on their resume and really don't, you know? Yeah. And let's just take the example of neuroscience ICU not every neuroscience unit that's an ICU is the same. It could be a community hospital that is, 
you know, this tiny little unit that is a ICU by name, but the most that you do is perhaps run a cardine drip, right? Mm -hmm. And control blood pressure. Mm -hmm. You're not doing the really fancy stuff such as bolts, monitors, EVDs. Um, I've met some nurses in neuroscience that still sweat <laughs> over the thought of having somebody with an, with an EVD and having a second patient on top of that. Right. And you and I know, cause we've been there. It's kind of like, that's no big deal. Yeah. And so I think that's hard too, is determining what truly makes an ICU nurse and what, what does that mean for that hospital and that person coming to you on the unit. Mm -hmm. And it kind of drives me insane sometimes to be quite honest, when there is a lot of money to be made as a bedside nurse, but you have to lie about it to get the higher pay, right? right. There's like no national standard of travel nursing, right? at least none that I can find in, in any way. But it sounds like, and I've, and I've also mentioned this to my students, that strong preceptors, strong unit management, when you can find it, and accepting unit management, accepting leadership um, is invaluable to your time as a new nurse. Oh, definitely. I mean, nursing school prepares you to pass your NCLEX and then you walk onto the unit and you're like, I know nothing. I know absolutely nothing. <laughs> it's a scary thing. <laughs> so having those preceptors to like sit there and when you maybe have a down moment to like quiz you and be like, so why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. What would be, what would happen if we did so-and-so and what are something, what's something you're looking out for is so helpful. Yeah. And it to be not a judgment period, right? Not right. something that you should feel threatened to answer, but something that you should be encouraged to answer. And if you don't know, you're going to look it up. Right. Yeah. I, I cannot, um, comment enough over that because so many times students will ask me, hey, what should I look for in a in a unit that I'm going to apply to? And it's kind of like, well, you're going to have to know what you're good at and what you're not good at based on the questions that you're struggling on by answering NCLEX questions, NCLEX practice questions. Mm -hmm. And then you got to find a program that is accepting enough to know that you're a brand new nurse, that you don't know much, and they're going to help mm. you learn and guide you through that process. Have you, have you been in hospitals that don't have that? Um, not that I've witnessed now. It's hard to say because I've really been only in one hospital that during non-COVID times to yeah. really experience <laughs> that. Otherwise, I'm trapped in the COVID ICU and they're not throwing new nurses in there, really. That's good. Uh, they're trying good to, to keep them to like the regular ICU so that they have some experience because otherwise they're going to come off orientation and not have, know how to take care of a regular ICU patient. Yeah. Um, so, but the one hospital that I did go to, they had a great preceptor program that um, they were able to, everybody felt okay to ask questions and no one was really off limits to like because you knew they were going to give you a bad answer, they were going to ignore you, they were going to give you a tough time. So it was really good to see like that kind of teamwork of like it takes a village kind of like a baby, yeah, the village to grow this person into a fully functioning nurse. That's so great to hear because I, I I truly you know back when I first did nursing school before I did nursing school is what I tell people because mm -hmm. <laughs> I failed out of nursing school twice <laughs> and 
I have ADHD. Like what, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that hopefully students will embrace me for and kind of be like, oh, she found that too. I can probably be okay in my life, you know, and they get straight A's and I'm like, you're fine. (laughs) Don't worry about it. (laughs) Anyway, I digress. Um, Back when I was at LaSalle University in their nursing program, I can remember my coworkers, my coworkers, excuse me, um, classmates looking forward to the time when they would first cry on their unit. It was like something that they, it was like a badge of honor almost. And I never, <laughs> right? I'm like, I never understood the aspect of, I'm looking forward to the day when I cry. Cause that's, that's how I know I'm, I'm a real nurse. <laughs> and back in the day, and this was back in 2005, that's what people expected in from nurses. Yeah. And that's before we had bullying and before we had eating their young, quote unquote, and all these things and, and really took into consideration, we are not so much of a good profession right now when we need to be better. Right. And so to hear that there are hospitals out there that are that have been completely revamped I don't know where they exist because we don't mention names on this podcast, but it's really refreshing to hear that so that I can kind of tell students like, yes, like these places exist outside of where I work and to explore them and to make sure that you're supported no matter where you go. Mm-hmm. That's so Definitely. important. So tell me about moving to California because this is probably going to be the bulk of this podcast, which I'm really interested in, in learning from you about. And kind of getting thrown into the wolves of being a COVID ICU nurse because travel nursing, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I've talked to a couple of people that have done travel nursing and it's kind of like you get put into this unit, you know what you're going to get yourself into, but you really don't know what kind of patients you're going to get. But for you and working and being thrown into a COVID ICU unit, that had to have been crazy different. Yeah. So I made the decision to go to California. Um, One of the reasons was I know California is known for their great nursing unions. And there was all this talk of lack of PPE and all that. And I was like, California won't have a problem. So I was like, for my own safety, I was like, California might be my best bet. Right. So I took a job in Northern California first and I was supposed to be an interfacility float. Okay. So I was able to float to four hospitals. I had three days of orientation. One was at one hospital. So I had about four hours maybe on the unit, went to another hospital the second um, time. And then the third day I went back to the first hospital and they're like, here's your patient assignment. Wow. So they luckily at this hospital did COVID patients were one-to-one. So as long as they were vented, if they were not vented, which in my mind doesn't make sense because I feel like you're in there more with a non-vented patient. Yeah, um, sometimes. Talk and request things and you're gowning up and gowning off and everything. So I had my one ICU patient and I don't know if it was just getting adjusted to working COVID, but like even giving report, I'm used to very detailed report. Mm-hmm. Whereas you come into a COVID ICU and it's like, they have COVID. They, <laughs> you know, the basics of they came in when they got intubated, when you started proning, what their proning schedule is. Yes. And that's it. Yes. That's all you get in your report. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and 
with working there, you quickly learn to like become a team because everybody's flipping their patients. You need six people to flip a patient. So you kind of have to build relationships real quick of, I need to prone my patient. I need to flip my patient. I'm stuck in the room and I really need something. Can you go up on my Levo because my pressure is now bottoming out because I'm stuck in the room because they were ones that they put the pumps outside of the room. Okay. So you're kind of like, oh, my pressure is 60 over 30, like banging on the door to try and get somebody to titrate your Levo for you. So it was definitely like a completely different way of working in an ICU plus managing these patients who are so, so sick. Mm. Um, it was something that like, it took me a couple days to like get on my feet, but luckily I started with other travelers. So I could like kind of bounce ideas off of like them of like, is this something you would go with for like an order? Or like, are you seeing these kind of things with how they do things? Because not, of course, not every hospital runs the same way. Policies are different. Mm -hmm. Some hospitals, you can write orders to the doctors um, and just tag them on it and they're okay with that. And some, that's an absolute no-no. You must call the doctor because you cannot put anything, even if it's just like a diet order in. Wow. <laughs> Talk about being a nurse, right? Right. <laughs> Goodness. That, that is nuts. Um, but I do have similarities with COVID patients in terms of, and, and, and even with like the feelings of things. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you're used to getting detailed reports, right? Yeah. I, I, I am as well. We go through every system, head to toe, mm -hmm. in and out. And when you work in a COVID ICU, it's kind of like they have, they have COVID and that's it. <laughs> that's and right. It's so strange to think that we are we are experiencing the same things because I thought I was probably the only unit experiencing this weirdness. Mm -hmm. And maybe maybe it's different for those that perhaps have a medical ICU background first. But I'm so used to okay, well, what does this mean? Okay, well, what does this mean? And it took me a while to really delve into the laboratory values and what those mean mm -hmm. and asking questions and figuring out, you know, from day one, because we literally knew nothing about this. Right. And figure out what lab values meant and what it meant to have a high D dimer and what it meant to have a high LDH level and C-reactive proteins and procalcitonins and just markers that you don't think really matter until you meet COVID. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then you're like, wow, what do I do now? Because nothing prepares you for this experience with COVID patients, right? Because right. you, you just mentioned, and I love that you mentioned this, that you had to build relationships with each other to figure out what to do best for your patient or to figure out, you know, hey, can you please go up on my Levo drip? Or, hey, can you go, can you deliver this to, to this person? Was your unit, so the, 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 the uh, pumps being outside of the room, did you have to be in an N95 for the 12 hour period of time or were, or were you okay to kind of wear just a surgical mask in that unit? So you were technically okay to just wear like a surgical mask. And then whenever yeah. you went to the rooms, you gowned up. Typically I would wear the N95 cause you would have some people that were 
nonchalant about right. COVID and would leave their doors open. And, you know, I just, as a precaution, I just wore the N95 all the time. Also, yeah. it was just one less thing to put on if I had to rush into the room. Yes. Okay. I wasn't sure. I've, I've seen a lot of hospital photos of what their units look like in terms of COVID. And there are units that have to wear N95s all the time because their, their unit is not negative pressured, mm-hmm. which, is a, which is a frightening thing to think about. Um, for those that don't know what that is, a negative pressure helps to filter the air and get all of the bad air out without compromising air elsewhere. And at least in certain hospitals, there are already rooms built in that are negative pressure. <clears throat> However, for hospitals that have the capability to do construction, you can actually build in, like knock out a window and put a, put a reverse like air filtration system in that room. However, if your hospital does not have the capabilities, does not have the finances, does not have the, like the, the basic room architecture set up in a way that you can do this, then the whole unit just becomes locked down, shut down, and you can't exist without an N95 because the air is not filtered out. And that's just, it's crazy to, to think about that. I mean, I think this thing has exposed so much absurdities about our medical healthcare system and how hospitals were built and how, you know, people continue to exist in this world. But I wanted people to know that there is a difference between a unit that has lockdown, you have to wear your N95 for 12 full hours, and then units that are negative pressured and you can you can take off your N95 if you want and wear a surgical mask, or you can wear both at the same time if you're if you have that PPE. Right. Did you have a lot of patients? Because you mentioned that you were one to one one to one ratio with vents, yeah. and how they could be really busy without vents, which is which is correct, right? And you think about these things. Did you have a lot of CRTs and insulin drips? Um, not too much on the insulin drips every once in a while I feel like they would pop up but CRTs as a traveler you don't take CRTs um but I feel like eventually it got to the point that almost I like I would get floated to the regular ICU because all the COVID patients were on CRT so all the regular staff were down there taking care of them um so they and uh, the longer they stayed um the longer their kidneys continue to crap out so then they would go on CRT it seemed like so if they were it kind of depended on if they would stay long enough that they would get on CRT I gotcha did you have any ECMO patients at all they so I haven't been at a hospital that does ECMO yet um they would at the first hospital that I worked at in California they would ship them to another hospital if they could do ECMO, which I saw, I think they sent two or three during the three months that I was there to get ECMO done. Because I don't, I don't know that there's benefit. I mean, I guess it depends on what time you do ECMO for these patients, but I don't know that there's much benefit once you reach the point of needing ECMO. Right. I mean, that's like a last ditch effort in my opinion for these patients that don't have the lung capacity anymore to really exist and survive yeah that's that's kind of it's kind of uh scary 
if you're a nurse working in a COVID unit that does not have CRT capability, mm -hmm. um, does not have ECMO capability, or has to you know transfer them out, because then you're then you're left with well, what else is there? Yeah. And there might not be anything else out there, you know. Right. So then, what was life like after that hospital? How 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 long did you stay in Northern California for? So I was in Northern California from August until the very end of October. Okay. No, no, November. I forgot August, September. It was, yeah, it was the end of October. Cause then I started down in Southern California right at the beginning of November. Okay. Um, right. Like this November. This November. <laughs> so right before crap hit the fan. Before yeah right before la became um italy basically um it it honestly had gotten to that level it got to a point where between like the stress of work and being far away from home i was yeah. like i i need out i and that is why i took a contract on the east coast so that I was closer to family and like my support system because i was like this pandemic's not going anywhere unfortunately no. So if I'm going to take care of these very sick patients, like I just, something needs to give. And I was like, and I told the hospital, like, I'm sorry, but like for my own mental health, like I need to leave a month early so that I can be closer to home. So how did that, how did that truly impact you? Like what, and, and I, I want to be, you know, very sensitive to what you've gone through, but if you could describe as best as possible how that really impacted you? Like, what were the feelings you were going through that you've noticed? And I, me I mentioned that because everyone experiences burnout a different way. Lauren, who was on an episode last season, did a very great job at describing what her burnout was like mm -hmm. and why she had to leave the unit she had to with the loss of her father. And that was a very, that was a super brave story for her to tell that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested in, in finding out because my burnout symptoms are not from COVID because I get to leave the COVID unit and work in my home unit. But Mayan, you know, if there's a lot of loss around me, if there's a lot of conflict around me and the conflict can be many different things, I will start to retreat in myself and get kind of angry for no reason. And then question my job, look for new jobs. What am I doing? And then I say to myself, I need to just go on my app and breathe in and breathe out and refocus myself because this is not who I am. Right. So what what was your experience like within that environment? What were your triggers and what helped you besides leaving, you know, completely leaving, which I'm sure was the ultimate help, but what helped you kind of stay that long in that particular area? I mean, the plus with staying in California is it has these great national parks. So I retreated into nature a lot, went hiking, anything to be outside, anything that did not resemble a hospital. Um, it was just hard because they were young. They were young. Like, I think the youngest I took care of was 23. Wow. Um, and it's hard because you get them in the ICU and they're not quite sick that level of sick but they you watch them decrease and I think what was hard was you watch these people and you take care of them and they're able to talk to you and you form a relationship and you're taking care of them for a week week and a half and then they hit that wall 
they're on 100% BiPAP, they're huffing and puffing, and they just get tired. And I don't, I've never been in the situation, like in our ICU, like our patients become like very obtunded and, you know, you intubate them. Mm -hmm. These people are holding onto your hand and pleading with you while you into like while you get ready to intubate them and that was something that was i've never dealt with before and it's something that like will probably honestly keep me up at night i will think about these patients and think about their words to me and it was something that i was like you know i i started writing in a journal to try and like process these feelings i've reached out to a therapist because I obviously am big into mental health, so should probably seek out an expert. Like I tried to like be with friends and just try and like kind of compartmentalize it. That's not how you say it. Compartmentalize. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> um, to like this, like you can think about it for a little bit. You can grieve these people, um, but after that, like you need to work on something else because I think that's what I started to do is like, you can have, you have five minutes. Mm -hmm. You can be sad. You can cry. You can think about it for five minutes and mm -hmm. then you got to move on. Mm -hmm. And I think it'll get easier as time goes on, just like most grief. But in the moment where I'm working there all the time and I'm seeing me same people it became really hard to like separate myself. So then that was when I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I, and I could imagine that it's so hard to see people so young in the relative age range that you are. Right. And, you know, we, you think people think of this illness as old people or as those that are really sick underneath in terms of like past medical conditions. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case mm -mm. sometimes. And it certainly doesn't sound it in Los Angeles. And that's a huge area too. Yeah. And I think California now has no ICU beds and also is refusing to take patients into hospitals. Mm -hmm. But like if you, if you call 911 and you don't need a ventilator, you're not even going to be seen. You're going to be left at home mm -hmm. um, and even, you know, mitigated in such a way that you're not going to, if, if you need, if, if you have a, a low chance of surviving this and you need X amount of help from a hospital, you're not going to be receiving that help. You're going to be basically put on hospice right. for, for a very sharp description of what that means. Yeah. And hospitals can do that because you have to save the, the most amount of people that will benefit the greater population. Right. It turns into to that kind of aspect. And I don't want to get to that part in the state of Pennsylvania. And I can only imagine that, you know, from reading your, your posts on Facebook, right? And, and, and hearing that frustration that you have and people still going out for Thanksgiving and people still doing these things. And, and you know, in, in LA County alone, what, there's like 50 million people? Yeah. Maybe, maybe a little bit less, I don't even know. Probably more, who knows? But all those people not listening to anything and then and then needing help also has to be a huge frustration point and a huge point of I'm just done yeah 
I mean, I never thought I would have the discussion with a family member. One of my, um, I think it was the daughter-in-law of my, my patient called in and she was like, so I was just curious because she's like, I'm not sure if the media is trying to spin this and make it more dramatic, but they were saying that they were going to start rationalizing, rationing care. Mm-hmm. And she was like, do we have to worry about him? I was like, I like, we work in the United States. Like this doesn't sound like something that I ever thought we'd have to deal with or that I'd be having this conversation of your father-in-law is in the ICU. So he's where he needs to be. Now I can't speak for the 20 other ICU patients in the ED that are waiting for a bed. Right. Because that was a situation right before I left was we had a patient pass away. We had one bed. The unit manager called the ED and said, send up the sickest one, pick. Right. Because that was where they were at at that hospital. Wow. Did, did they have a system in place, like a numbered system to help like kind of uh, suggest what patients met criteria to be the sickest patient? I don't know if that was something that the ED had in their system or not, unfortunately. Um, we didn't really have anything like that. Um, in the Southern California hospital, I was taking two patients. They were talking about doing three. They tossed around the idea of the team nursing mm-hmm. um, because we were getting so strapped for nurses and trying to take care of all of these patients. I think team nursing has its places in COVID units, but perhaps not the ICU because yeah. of how sick the people are and how you could be in the room, gowned up, gloved up, all that stuff, and you need 30 things that you didn't think of while you're in that room. Mm-hmm. And that just doesn't work well when you have team nursing. Team nursing, by definition, is essentially a group of nurses, not a ratioed, like a patient on ratio unit. So it's a, I don't know, I, I forget what what the, what the numbers come out with. I think the ACN and the SCCM have a really good article. I'm going to write that down. Um, that describe team nursing and its aspects in COVID care. And you have, you should always have at least one ICU nurse or two ICU nurses oversee the team, depending on how big your team is. And essentially you have nurses that are all hands on deck, help out with whatever they can. So one nurse gives meds, one or two, one or two nurses help just turn the patients every two hours, whatever it is. And you kind of do this aspect as a team. And those work for less acuity units, in my opinion, because of how much you have to do or how much you might have to deal with when you have a patient that might be on CRT or might have an insulin drip every hour, which is really annoying. And I say that with love because you, you are donning and doffing and that process takes a good 15 minutes to do each time. Mm-hmm. Um, what was, what, if, what is your, do, your, your doffing process? So in the Northern hospital, I would do like it was the n95 they had the hair bonnets they had the face shields you mm-hmm. had the gown you had miss sometimes you had the boot like the shoe covers not all the time um and then in the 
but I would do that for just going into the rooms. The Southern California one was an actual like locked unit. Okay. So you had to gown up before you went in and then you came out to a ante room where they had the instructions of like take off um and it was our shoe covers and the first layer of gloves and then it was to grab take our gown and that glove off hand sanitize then you grabbed another pair of gloves wipes you wiped off your eye protection and um then throw that away and then you probably on another pair of gloves and you went out with your n95 on when you got out you took off your n95 and put on a surgical mask wow <laughs> i i mean i i'm i'm very interested in, in what people's doffing processes are because i believe that outbreaks in nurses are maybe caused by improper breaching techniques mm -hmm. so ours so you you guys get boots i don't wear the shoes because i have my own covid covid shoes mm -hmm. but i have heard units of wearing you know the shoe protector things but if we're doffing and you and you may mention of your second pair of gloves you, you wear two pairs of gloves in every room we were allowed to wear two pairs of gloves so that um once you were in the room you took those off and put like a new pair on you could use hand sanitizer on them if you so chose um so like kind of like your first pair of gloves was like your bare hands you clean those okay off, yeah put a pair of gloves on oh that sounds sticky <laughs> that <laughs> sounds <laughs> sticky and difficult to put on that new pair of gloves oh man nope um I have worn two pair of gloves in rooms when I know that I'm going to have to do things for patient care, such as such as clean them up with wipes or do some sort of eight, um, which call techniques, ADLs, excuse me, yeah, um, or something like that. But I don't often wear two pair of gloves. But it's I think that part is hospital specific and not necessarily like a larger recommendation. But when we doff, we are sanitizing our gloves. And then pulling off our gown in the correct way of pulling off your gown. And then, you know, wrapping that up, tossing it into the trash can, sanitizing your hands again, grabbing a paper towel to open and close the door, mm. sanitize your hands again, <laughs> then put a new pair of gloves on, remove, I remove both the bonnet and my face shield um, and put that into the dirty and then put, put the face shield into the dirty spot. So as I'm describing it to people listening, there's a top of a, of, of, a, of a table that you have that has two chucks on it and one's labeled dirty, one's labeled clean. And it's where you go put your things before and after you clean them with your proper cleaning materials. So I put my face shield in, in, in that dirty realm and then my bonnet goes in the trash because we get a new bonnet every time. And change gloves, wash hands. Then you're taken off, at least I have like goggles that I wear now. I used yeah. to not have goggles, but then they recommended goggles. So even there are some, some nurses I've noticed that, that don't wear them, but I wear them like because they recommended me to them. So I'm like, boom, let's just do it. So the goggles come off, change the wash hands. Then the N95 mask comes off. And then I put that in a separate paper bag that only holds that N95 mask. And I keep, I try my best to keep the the um straps of the mask to the outside of the of the bag and if i'm boring anybody yet <laughs> this is the steps of toffing and it's a lot 
So then we do that, we change gloves, wash hands. Um, then the surgical mask goes on. Then you can start the cleaning process of your goggles and your masks. And you have a two minute dwell time, which means that you are literally wiping something for two minutes or at least a minute and a half because then you have like a good solid like 30 seconds where it's still kind of like moist, it moist, sorry, wet. Um, <laughs> and then you kind of leave it to dwell and it, re and it remains like clean for that period of time. And that's exhausting. And when you have people that need things routinely, it's really strange to tell them to wait, right? Um, one of the big things that we do in a COVID unit is, is number one rule is it, there's no, there's no emergency in a pandemic. So you're not rushing into any kind of room because you can't, you're going to, you're going to do more harm to yourself and others than you will to that patient. And the other thing is you need to really cluster your care in such a way that if you don't have to go into a room, you don't go into a room to do the similar things of prevent you from getting COVID and exposure time and other people from the exposure time as well. I've known people that have actually, so, so we are able to have scrubs provided to us. I know a lot of hospitals don't have that option, but I've had nurses that have, that have changed their scrubs, like in the middle of their shift, if they feel that their exposure has been like, I think half an hour total mm -hmm. time which is something really unique to think of that I never thought of until somebody mentioned to me. And I was like, oh, I should really do that. Because I had this one patient come in from an outside hospital who we immediately upgraded to ICU. And one of our units is on this sixth floor, I think. And then the ICU is on the second floor and I'm still wearing all this garb and I am sweating. Yeah. <laughs> and I, we, we get this patient down to the ICU into that bed and I walk out of that room and my arms are just covered in sweat and my and my my scrubs are just sweaty and I mean like I have never been this sweaty since I've done a triathlon <laughs> and like, this is this is the most sweat I've ever done in, the, in scrubs in my life and I'm like just grossed out and this poor nurse practitioner she looks at me she goes I think you need a new <laughs> a new scrub top and I was like I need a new just change of everything. <laughs> and the other nurse was like, oh yeah, you're, you're going to need a, a new pair of scrubs, not only because you're sweaty in them, right? But because the back of your scrubs, your PPE actually does not protect the back of your scrubs. Right. And so that's the part that they, that they mentioned to us that, you know, if, if you're long exposure, you should really consider changing, changing this out. So, so that was a long story of like sweating, <laughs> coughing. <laughs> but it certainly is unique to hear other people's experiences. And I don't know if you've heard, if you heard the story of the nurse from South Dakota that was using the same N95 since like April. Oof. Did you hear that story? I don't think I did. There was a nurse. So I hop on Twitter every now and then to kind of just peruse through. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't really get too excited about much because I, because I will get very upset about things if I do. Right. <laughs> And I always try to search for COVID-19 data. I love, you know, seeing graphs and data and things like that. And this story came out that a nurse in, I think it was South Dakota, works in hospice, was not provided a new N N95 mask because to her employer, the mask was not broken or torn. <laughs> and I'm like, if your job 
tells you that you can't, that, that you have to violate infectious disease precautions because there's no tear in things when it's recommended that, you know, these, these microbes are just attached to this mask and there's no way of changing it out. Like just quit. Yeah. Like, oh goodness. Did you see, have you seen like any kind of emergency with PPE, especially in like Los Angeles? Was there any craziness going on? So like the last week that I was there, they were like suggesting not to put like your surgical mask over your N95 and they were suggesting not to put on a second layer of gloves. They weren't stopping you. And even like in North Cal, in Northern California, when I was there, they were, the hospital just bought, um, pappers and cappers to, and then you would just wipe that down and you could share those, um, to, so that they could conserve more PPE. Okay. Kept buying those. And then they'd have a papper or cappers assigned to every single room. Oh, that's really nice. So it's just like a one-time share thing. Yeah. That is really nice. Did you have, did you have any feeling of maybe this is going to be the last bit of this PPE, like, like in that over that, that like impending doom feeling? Never in California. <laughs> That's good. Um, I do remember when like COVID originally started and I was working at the hospital in PA um, and the CDC said, you know, it's not airborne, it's droplet. You, so right. therefore you don't need an N95, you can just wear a regular surgical mask. And I was taking care of one of the COVID patients and the nurse manager came by and I had to wipe down my um, capper. And he's like, why are you using that? And I said, because I went into the room and he's like, well, the CDC said you don't need it anymore. It's just droplet. Yeah, there was, there was, I remember, I remember someone saying like, there was, let me, let me, let me uh, go back there a little bit. When COVID first hit, we were like N95 everything because yeah. we didn't know. And then we kind of knew it was, it was droplet. And then we knew kind of it was airborne, but we, we didn't really have a hundred percent like confirmation of this and some people were I, I was hearing around like different hospitals some people were only droplet some people were only airborne some, some people were a mix of both mm-hmm. um then it was it was explained in different areas that well if they're not actively coughing they're just droplet but if they're coughing then it's airborne <laughs> and you're like what difference does that make right um because if you're going to make somebody cough no matter what then it's going to be airborne. So why not just make everybody airborne? Right. And maybe that was done to protect the PPE. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know. But I am really intrigued in in what this next administration is going to to do. I think. I think they'll do great. But mm-hmm. it's going to be really interesting to look back and see what mistakes were made because I do think there were many. Yeah. In terms of getting hospitals PPE all over the place. Mm-hmm. and what could have done better. I, I did read somewhere, I'm going to have to also <laughs> put the link out there, um, that when when this new, th- this current administration um, put out that act of emergency, I'm, I'm butchering this so hard right now, but basically the act that says we can produce things at emergency levels and get them made right then and there. Mm-hmm they did not do that to its fullest extent. And one particular person 
decided that once we got PPE delivered to this country, that they were actually going to just send it, send it to the companies to sell to hospitals. And so (laughs) you're like, yes, that sounds like a great idea, right? (laughs) Here's the problem with that, everybody. When you have that happen, um, and hospitals can't afford to buy PPE because they are stopping their elective procedures, they will no longer have PPE. And you can't, in my opinion, you can't just do that. You have to just provide the PPE to hospitals and nurses and doctors and respiratory therapists and all the people that are are trying to handle COVID the best they can mm-hmm. and not create a business deal out of it. And right. that was a, like a really eye-opening thing that I'm like, this makes sense now as to why we had such a PPE issue and in, in different places and why everybody just wasn't getting what they wanted. Right. Because like California, again, California nursing unions are a powerful, powerful entity. So us out of state nurses are coming in and we were getting orientation and we're like, how long do we have to use an N95 for? And they looked at us shocked. And she, the educator was like, what do you mean? And I was like, do I have to use this for my whole week a shift just one and they're like she's like you can take one a shift she goes if you need another one that shift take another one like it like it was very nonchalant and I was like what do you mean I can use two N95s a day <laughs> I laugh because now you can looking back on that but it's like <laughs> what stressful environment must it be to to for someone to tell you you can only use an N95 forever and that this is the only n95 you get and that's it yeah like oh you just take two if you want it's fine <laughs> we'll just make new ones right that's the way it should be like <laughs> if you need another n5 just take another n95 like okay goodness you better get a uh <laughs> it is like cracking up at herself right now too <laughs> oh man what a, that just sounds that is that is insane and i can just imagine the nurse like what are you talking about where did you come from right it was the same thing it was the same thing with breaks because in california now that's a state law i realized you have to get a 30 minute break for every five hours you work wow yeah so they sent me on my break and i was like and i came back like 10 minutes later and she's like what are you doing here and i was like well, I, I I'm done. I beat like I did it all in ten minutes because that's what you have. And she's like, "Oh, she goes, you get um two thirty minute breaks, and like somebody comes and relieves you and watches your patient for you while you go." Like a separate nurse? Yeah, they have break nurses. What? <laughs> that that's their job. They come. They tell you. They ask when you want to take your break. And then they come and for 30 minutes, you have somebody watching your patients. Who just and, you, has your patients. and you do two 30 minutes at a time and do like an hour. So they do that on night shift so that they can take a nap. <gasps> wow. I never <laughs> really needed a nap, but man, this is mind blowing. <laughs> I never really want to live in California. Like I visited it so many times for many different reasons. I just don't ever want to live there. But the magic that happens in California for nurses sounds fabulous like just take a nap during night shift okay that's great help help to relieve my non-natural ability of staying awake at nighttime like 
that's 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 needed i suppose you could do that elsewhere you just have to like put your brakes together but you'd also have to have a supportive employer to, to do that but that's state law or yeah. like for for them wow what other state laws are there that was really the only one i paid attention to yeah i mean like no i mean yeah I, it's probably the only one I would have paid attention to because nothing else really matters at that point. You're like, oh, I get I get 30 minutes and I can stay on my break for 30 minutes and I don't have to rush to like eat and like shove food in my face and digest horribly. I can actually take my time. And if I don't want to eat on my break, I can just go walk around the outside or whatever you wanted to do. And like what was nice was also like it was your time to go. So it didn't matter what was happening because your patient could decide I want to crash right now. And no one's going to call you. You're like in the middle, I'd be in the middle of rushing around to do things and they'd come up and be like, it's time for a break. And I'm like, I have 60 things on my to-do list. And they're like, it's fine. I'll, I'll work on it. Go, go take your 30 minutes. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> wow. <laughs> do you do my work for me for, <laughs> while I go pee? <laughs> Talk about the relief of self-guilt. <laughs> I, I can remember, um, so many years ago when we were working on getting people out of their jobs on time, which that's a big deal for organizations and nurses that I don't think many people realize that it's such a big deal to do mm-hmm. because you shouldn't be staying at your job longer than you're getting paid for and longer than your, I should say longer than what your, your contract, whatever it is, is there for. So like if you're a 12 hour shift nurse, you should only be there for 12 hours it's understandable if you're there for a little bit longer because something happens. But I remember nurses feeling that they had to do a full assessment, charting on everything, making sure all these meds got ordered and all these things were done at like change of shift. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's a 24 hour facility. Why would you need to feel that way? But it was a mindset of nurses mm-hmm. and it took a lot of, a lot of work from all parts of the organization to say to people, it's okay to just get a patient comfortable, settled, and just give report and get out of here. Yeah. And I think really that helps the ability to just forget your work environment for that 12 hours. Mm-hmm. You know, like I am not like you where you will remember what people say to you. Mm-hmm. I kind of remember things like I'll never forget, <laughs> I'll never forget this one person told me that they wished that I died in a fiery car crash on the way home from oh. work. <laughs> this person was an addict, um, I should say, it was not in their right mind. I hope they, they, they have gotten help they need, but I will never forget that comment. And I just couldn't help but laugh at it because I'm like, I, I can't win, you know, and I'm not going yeah. to win. And, you know, if I, if, in my opinion, if I took too many things to heart, I would just not exist as a nurse because it's very hard when, when, like you said, people are holding your hand and they're about to be intubated or they're about to just go down south really bad. That is one of those moments that they teach you in nursing school to do because you're like, oh, you have to be this compassionate person. But at some point, compassion is going to get the best of you and you're not gonna be able to let it go. Yeah. And if you are more of an emotional nurse, which is not, which is not a problem, but let's say you have a tendency to be more emotional towards important aspects of a patient care and not being able to let that go. That is going to be a trigger for you in terms of caring for patients. Yeah. And 
that is a, a big thing that I try to teach my nursing students about, especially the ones that have came to actual clinicals this particular last semester. I made sure to really to really hit home with, I thank you so much for, for volunteering, for being here, because you're gonna hear what it's like to be a nurse and you're gonna experience what it's like to have frustration from patients and physicians and other nurses and charge nurses and all these, these noises that you're not gonna get in a virtual environment. And you really need to understand what that mental balance is gonna be for you. Right. And for you, it was, I need to get out of California. Yeah. Peace out. You know, I, I don't blame you. I would have done the same thing. I think, I think retrospectively, I left Pittsburgh because of the same sort of aspect. I just, if Pittsburgh is, I love, I have a deep love for Pittsburgh. I'm not from Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. but I have a deep love for it. But it was six hour drive away from home, 45 minute flight. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm not flying that often. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it was a six hour drive from home. And it's not like a six hour drive where you're driving 95 in the middle of cities. It's a six hour drive <laughs> with nature. <Yes. laughs> and, and if it blizzards outside, you can't get home past the one exit that's in the middle between Harrisburg and, and Pittsburgh. It's closed down. Yes. So, so I feel, I felt a little, you know, trapped in this bubble, I think for me. And I was kind of like, I need to change. I need something to change. And I remember just feeling like I couldn't win in my job. I couldn't win with management. I couldn't win with patients. I just felt just all over the place. And so I decided to just leave three hours east, not necessarily 3,000 miles east, <laughs> but I'm cl- I am closer to my family and have really just appreciated a nicer area and not feeling like I'm trapped in a bubble. Right. And LA, in my opinion, you know, in my experiences, has been just this bubble of I don't understand what people like about LA. I don't know. I if I had to pick, I would pick Northern California. Yeah, for sure. And I think it was eye-opening too to like find out that LA was not the more expensive area to live in. Right. Northern California is because of Silicon Valley. Yes. Um, which to me, I was like, LA movie stars expensive. <laughs> right but it's not and then it I think part of the issue too is like I'm at work and I'm slaving and trying to save these people and then you come out and then you're battered with like well COVID's not real it's not that bad and you're like I like I'm getting beaten down literally from all sides and I was like I can't like this like I have to pick and choose my battles now. And like my, the battle that I'm putting, like I'm forfeiting is being away from home right now. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's probably the hardest thing and most frustrating thing for me as well is when you have the people that don't believe this is real. They've attended anti-mask rallies. They are believers in some conspiracy theory out there. And then they come to the ICUs because now they have COVID. Mm-hmm. It's such a, it's so hard. Like, I don't, I don't know how to really tell people how hard this is. It is so hard to deal with as a nurse because you know, and you're trying to tell people and people are like, meh, I don't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> this is not like, this isn't like, you know, when you have somebody with congestive heart failure or diabetes or the flu, 
or any other kind of illness or disease that you kind of, you, you've kind of done this throughout your life, you know the risks involved and you've chosen to live this life. People assume that that's the same thing as COVID and it's not. Mm -hmm. This thing kills people. It's killed two of my colleagues that I know mm -hmm. known. And it's just the most frustrating thing to, to really, you know, have people that I know that have negative COVID tests, but still want to go to parties right. and still want to go to, to like meals together and just other things that you're like, but why, like, can't you just stop for the moment until this calms down and just until it stops. And at some point you have to kind of, I think just say whatever, because mm -hmm. there's nothing else that you can really do, but it is the most frustrating thing for people to be really invested in it for one minute and then be like, nah, I don't believe it. This right. is going on. This is going on for too long. I'm done yeah. with this. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I've been utilizing the unfollow on social media oh, yes. because <laughs> I can, yeah, I can only take so much. So I just unfollow, like I'll just remove it and I won't have to look at it and then be done with it. I think that's, I think that's the most, the, uh, one of the more smartest steps to take. There was some video on YouTube, Plandemic. Um, I don't, I don't want to give it too much credit because I yeah. hate that, right? I don't want to give, I hate giving negative things power, yeah. but when that, when that spread, I, unfollow was my best friend until everyone wants to calm down and come back. <laughs> that's where you're going to live in purgatory. Right. <laughs> and similarly, you know, with what I've been paying attention to in terms of signing on to Twitter for a hot minute, or even like Instagram, I, you know, I choose to follow certain hashtags because those are going to bring, bring me a little bit more joy than this negative stuff out there. Mm -hmm. And even with like TikTok, I love TikTok. It cracks me up all the time, <laughs> but if I get stuck, stuck in some weird land, <laughs> like I don't even know what kind of lands these are, but TikTok has weird lands. And if I get stuck in like some crazy thing of conspiracy theories and all that stuff, I just, nope, I can't. And I think people, you know, who don't understand that, that the process of letting go and deplugging is so important that they're going to miss out on so much. Like as an example, um, there was recent events yesterday that this podcast will come out like, I don't even know, a month from now. Mm -hmm. We'll just say that the, that Rome burned in the United States of America, but I had no clue because I was out in nature doing a trail run and then come back to my phone with people like randomly like posting Facebook updates. And I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> and that blissful ignorance was just perfect for me because I maintained that Zen for so long and just kind of like loved it. And I think that's just what people need to do in my yeah. opinion. So what are your goals that you mentioned? You were like, I, I wanted to travel nursing until all my goals are met. What are those goals for you? So I am hoping to get rid of my private loans completely, okay. um, which will be total will be a hundred thousand wow. um, dollars. So they should be paid off after this next contract. Um, That's awesome. So, and then I will have my uh, master's paid for. And then that way I can use any extra money to buy a house, um, plan a wedding, um, all that kind of fun stuff. So as rough as it's been, I mean, it was very joyful to like give 
a big lump sum to my loan company. And then they texted me, I think like three days later going, are you happy with us? Like, is everything okay? And I'm like, you guys are great. Like, I just don't want to owe you a lot of money is all. <laughs> are you not happy with our month to month payment systems? <laughs> like, yeah, but I don't want to, I don't want to pay you for forever. Like our relationship right. needs to end at some point. Right. <laughs> I'm just cutting <laughs> it like 14 years short. It's fine. <laughs> right. I mean, that's great. 14 years peace out, right? I'll recommend you to my next person that needs a student loan repayment system. Oh, goodness. So what, so as a, with your MSN in a psych nurse practitioner role, do you see yourself still traveling with that? Do you see yourself maybe having like a house and like, like, I I shouldn't say more stable environment because travel nursing is very stable, but just like one, one particular area where you want to like live and enjoy? So I think I'll probably end up staying in one spot, but my like viewpoint of what I wanted to do has definitely changed because originally I was still, I wanted to go back to working with kids. I really liked working with the adolescents and then working in neuro, I was like, maybe I work strictly with like stroke patients. I feel like they're kind of neglected a little bit on the psych aspect. Ooh, they totally and, are. And then after all of this, I was like, honestly, it would probably be really good to just work with healthcare professionals, Ooh. like talking with Lauren and like what she's dealt with. And then talking with like all of my coworkers working in COVID, like yes. all of us have these like traumas now. Yeah. Um, and how we've dealt with dealing with this of like being set originally, like being separated from our family. Cause we didn't know how it was spread. We didn't want to bring it home or now you're dealing with all of this loss and patients passing away and having to like call family members every day with like an update of not much happened or the worst is coming, you know, and talking with like my coworkers and such, I was like, I think honestly, it would be good just to work strictly with healthcare professionals. I've been there where they've been at it'd be good to just have someone kind of in their corner then. That sounds fabulous. <laughs> and I say that because like, I don't know anybody that has a business that focuses just on the healthcare aspect of mental health and what that's like coming out of a really hard time in your career. And I mean that not just because of COVID and the PTSD that's going to happen from healthcare providers and healthcare yeah. people everywhere. But also like, let's say like you just get fired from a job and you have no clue what you're going to do with your nursing degree now, right? Yeah. Or you are limited now because you had an injury at work and you can't return to the bedside or you have some sort of like crazy restriction on what you can do. That's got to be hard too. So, I mean, I don't, I, I, there could be them out there. I don't know of any companies that really promote to the healthcare professional. And mm -hmm. it honestly feels most times that nurses have to do it themselves. Yeah. And even physicians. Yeah. And I think it was interesting because like talking with Lauren and like the loss of her dad mm -hmm. and she had reached out and she was saying a lot of like, they didn't get her humor. Cause you do get a really weird sense of humor as a nurse. Yeah. And you would make like these off the cuff comments that some people would be like, okay kind of, you know and you're like no it's fine like this is just the dark way I've learned to cope with it yes yes and 
I understand that humor <laughs> and I understand those comments. So I always thought, I was like, well, that would be good that like, I would at least be able to like go toe to toe with how somebody has coped with this. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I visited a, like a, a psychiatrist once in my life and I've never felt so judged <laughs> for like what I was thinking. And I was like, I thought you guys were supposed to help. I'm out. Cause I just <laughs> like, I, as well have this very dark sense of humor and just experience things a different way. But I tend to laugh at these things because if you don't laugh, you're not gonna survive. But, you know, it's just crazy to think that you can't just talk to somebody without them judging your thoughts. And it just could just be this joke that you're just trying to like survive, yeah. right? You're not, it's not like you're meeting these things and, and but you wanna talk about them because it's funny. It could be mm-hmm. funny to some people, just not to this, I guess to this, this psych person that has no clue what we do as ICU nurses. Right. Wow. That sounds great though. I mean, that's, that's cool. I think telehealth would be great for that as well. And I don't even know if, if you could have like a, like a brick and mortar practice, but that sounds really unique and just really needed, especially after, well, who, who knows what after COVID looks like. We're not, we're not even after COVID yet, but right. you know, yeah. Well, that's great. Anything else that you want to talk about today? Uh, I think, I feel like we hit most of it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I mean, we hit the COVID parts and I think that was the most important part of traveling and COVID. And this really kind of wrapped into a very great conversation of the mental health aspects of COVID in a provider standpoint, yeah. which I think was awesome. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being a part of it. Of course. <laughs> I hope you join, join us again. Yeah. With another recording. <laughs> Maybe I'll um, my NP. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's, I mean, goodness, make it, make something happen, make a website <laughs> and we'll put it in the, uh, in the show notes as well. And we can promote it and stuff. Okay. <laughs> awesome. <laughs>